0: Hi, this is Janesh, and
1: this is Pranab. You tune in to the Thirty Minute Hustle podcast.
2: I have gone through a journey of you know being constantly at a higher frequency of building something and always constantly excited and troubled and worried about what you're building. I think we function better when we are calm and. Each person's higher frequency or lower frequency impacts the other person's energy, right? Where it's in, it's in, it transmits between people. I think the world, for some reason, believes that it's really important to always be working and always be in a in a highly explosive phase when it comes to a startup. Unfortunately, those are the stories that are glorified. Um, we believe internally that we are we want to build a calm company, and people should really enjoy what they're doing.
1: Hey folks, thanks for tuning into the 30-Minute Hustle Podcast. I've always wondered what would be a great investment alternative other than stocks and mutual funds. So we have Nikhil, who is the founder of Grip Invest. Grip helps investors diversify their investment into alternative assets. The platform pools in investors' money and purchases physical assets and leases it to rental companies. Nikhil has had a tremendous journey so far over the years now. From founding Chalo, which is the largest mobility startup in the private bus space, He's also an advisor at the World Bank and previously worked at Morgan Stanley. It was so much fun hosting Nickel. We took a lot of insights from this episode with him. We hope you do too. Uh, nice to have you on the 30-Minute Hustle and really looking forward to our conversation today.
2: Same here. Thank you for having me on.
1: And Nikhil, just tell us about yourself. Let's get right into it on you founding companies and what has brought you to Grip.
2: Um, So Grip is a platform that allows all investors, individual investors, or what is typically called retail investors, to, to invest money to purchase physical assets like vehicles, electronics, furniture, and provide it on lease to companies for a fixed tenure and fixed returns. It basically allows them to diversify their investment portfolio away from fixed deposits, mutual funds, into a third category of assets, which is accessible, yielding them much higher returns, but continues to be a fixed income instrument. So that is what GRIP is. Um, There are two sides to this platform. One is the leasing, which happens to companies, and the other is investors putting in money. I think there are both different insights that we saw as a founding team that led us to Start Grip. On the investment side, we looked at you know our own investable portfolios or our own portfolios. And I have now been working for 10 years, so I built a sort of a supply, a sort of a small capital base. And I realized that almost all of my money was either in a fixed deposit or some kind of a stock instrument. A lot of us have. Maybe dabbled in real estate for our personal uses, personal homes, but at the price that real estate is today, it is not an investment class. Right? You will not make frequent investments in real estate as an investment class. Over the last decade, real estate was also not performed in a way that has really given returns that are exciting to investors. So we, as individual as investors ourselves, we found a constraint in terms of being able to make money. Right? The fixed incomes were giving us lower than the inflation rate and stock markets were incredibly volatile. So, one of the main insights was that people like us are probably facing the same question and asking themselves where else they can invest. When we looked at family offices and HIs, we realized that their portfolio is actually very diversified, right? They have a lot of investment options to play with, which are not accessible to everyone else. There is in some place, a good reason for it, because you want to make sure that people are not taking risk beyond what they can take, but that does not justify not providing those options. Providing those options with the right structure and care can be a benefit to retail investors and allow them to create wealth. Okay. So that was the first main insight um, at GRIP. Just to contextualize that, 300 million Indians, the top 300 million Indians in terms of wealth own $5 trillion in assets. And only 0.4% is in alternative investments. That is other than real estate, stock markets, and fixed income, and fixed deposits, right? So, the you know, we're at basically ground zero of what investment should be. The second insight actually came from our experience with Chalo. As a mobility company looking to scale, we needed a lot of buses, right? Ultimately, while we are a technology company, but the underlying service is being provided by having a bus. The same is true for Ola when it comes to having a cab. It is true for bounce when it comes to having a bike. It is also true for Netflix when it comes to content, for Amazon web services, when it comes to servers for Lenko, when it comes to furniture, right? You can keep drawing this line out and out for all types of use cases. Technology is basically an enabler that allows goods to be consumed at a higher utilization on an on-demand and asset-light basis, right? None of us will own servers at home. We don't need to own a car if Ola is there, right? This transition and the power of technology was suddenly changing business models where the owner of the physical asset, the operator of the physical asset and the end user were three different people. Someone else owned the car, Ola operated it and you consumed it, right? So three different entities. And this was giving rise to the need for a different form of capital in the form of lease finance. Okay. As a mobility company founder, it was very easy to see this transition happen. But as we looked around ourselves and spoke to other founders, we realized that the same is happening across industries. And this was the second insight that allowed us to start the journey with GRIP and combine the demand from investors into the supply of capital for companies.
0: So I wanted to ask you, um, are there models like this already existing in India uh, or in the global market? And and I find it very fresh um, looking at it from a layman's perspective. So, is there something that that has already been there, and something, or is it something that you are creating out of uh, 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 creating new?
2: Sure, um, I think there are there are models that exist providing alternative investments for investors, okay? and and there have been companies before us who have who have sort of Um, shown the light in this direction. Credex, for example, on invoice discounting, several of the names on P2P lending have definitely come up. There are some global names, for example, Yieldspeed is a a company that we look for inspiration out of the US, which is now managing about $1.3 billion in retail investor money into such kind of asset classes. What we have not seen, however, and we we believe GRIP is the first, is to create leasing or lease finance As an investment option as an alternative investment option for investors and that in that sense we are definitely the first we have our own journey now as we think about next steps in terms of how that product evolves how grip as a platform evolves but that to us is definitely a first not just in india but across the world
1: interesting and you know like me as myself with the in the age group i am i've been trying to look into investment opportunities be it retail investment or be it the uh, stock market as well. And there was especially in real estate also, because when you're looking into a diversified portfolio, the returns of investment, what you give is not so assured and there's a lot of volatility, be it inflation rates and be it like the appreciation of real estate as well. So these options do give, uh, it is very attractive for an individual like me who can significantly lock in a a small amount of capital every month or so. But how has it been addressing to the current uh, generation? How is the adoption to the platform? Because it's an interesting asset to go after because you're managing the complete uh, you know, distribution of the assets and you're also giving them returns on monthly basis, which is not happening across other investment sectors you look at. So how are you managing this and how does it work? How does the me- mechanics
2: of this work? Sure. Um, the way the platform works is to identify companies who want to lease assets first the curation of those companies is what grip does we have our own process to underwrite the credit of those companies as well as the asset that is being leased out we then present this information to investors or to to our users on the platform as a summary of the information we have and the analysis done it is up to the investor then to decide whether they would like to participate in this transaction or not grip does not advise it just simply is a transaction and a discovery platform. We do not tell the investor where they want to do. It is up to their discretion based on the information that is available to them. If they have more questions, we are happy to provide that information. But once again, we are simply facilitators. We are not advisors to any, any of our users. Once an investor then decides to make an investment, we facilitate the payment through a tr- through a payment gateway. The money flows into an escrow account gets clubbed with the money from other investors and goes into purchasing the asset. For example, we come to our car example. Let's say we're buying a Maruti car being leased for operating on a Uber platform. The money will go directly to Maruti to purchase that car. The car will be issued in the name of the investors and be operated by a fleet partner on Uber. Whatever returns are generated, Will come to the investors, again facilitated by GRIP, and that will allow them to have returns against this investment. So that's the mechanics plan. From a take-up perspective, I would say that it has been far more encouraging than we expected. Um, just to give some sense of numbers, we now manage about 90 crores on the platform, which means that investors have decided to put 90 crores across various transactions that 90 crores has gone into buying 90 crores worth of assets and leads to about 40 companies. So both in terms of the quantum of money, the number of assets, as well as the number of companies taking those assets has been quite significant for us in a fairly short journey of 15 months. Four and a half thousand investors have now made a first, a first investment on grip or via grip into these assets. What has been the most encouraging sign for us is the repeat rate that we are seeing for these investors, right? Like you talked about your experience, you would, if you come and came across a platform like this, it was, it would be quite easy for you to experiment and say, let me write the first 20,000 rupees check and experience this, right? I think if we are able to get people to do make repeat transaction, then we are onto something in terms of being a product that people like as well as an experience that they enjoy and can trust. 43% of our investors have already made a second investment. And 12% are on their fifth investment. Typically, a fifth investment happens within 100 days of someone joining the platform. So we're seeing very high repeat rates, which is a big signal for us that we're doing something right. If we just look at the... Oldest users, you know, people who joined our platform within the first three or four months, seventy percent of them have made a second investment, right? So we are seeing great repeat rates, and I think that's a it's a good signal uh, for us. There is still a lot of work to be done uh, to build more credibility with investors, to make sure that we are offering investment options that are attractive to them, have the right r- risk to return ratio, and that's sort of the next phase of this.
0: So this this is a completely new product, and and um... I'm sure you have a lot of uh, uh, policies that might not actually, you know, uh, be suitable for this particular product. Have you faced any sort of hurdles or is it something that needs to be developed on? There is
2: a lot of clarity on the regulation that is still required. As you correctly mentioned, this is a new product and regulation around such models, not just grip, but around alternative investment models which are based on crowdsourcing of capital are still not are still not fully in place i believe the p2p regulations was a great initiative by the regulators to make the first sort of fundamental block towards enabling such products but there is more to be done i in fact um, you know came across a sebi discussion paper in 2014 that talked about crowdsourcing models and it was a To me a great discussion paper unfortunately never came into regulation. So I believe the regulator is definitely thinking about in that direction. What we have done is to take legal opinion, understand the current framework of law, Companies Act, SEBI, RBI and create a structure that is in compliance with the current regulatory framework. However, this is not a operationally easy framework to manage. Any framework needs to be compliant, and also operationally easy. Today, the framework is not operationally easy. It is compliant, but not operationally easy, which makes execution for us fairly cumbersome and also difficult for our investors. I believe that if this was to get resolved, we may have grown 2x or 3x in the same period of time because it will become easier for everyone to grow. We we believe that the regulator will ultimately see this direction coming and support companies like us enabling the right structure, and also reducing the, the, the effort of being able to execute such transactions.
0: I do see it as, as something that is uh, that has a lot of different entities involved. And um, I think your experience in sort of being in different uh, fields has also helped you in sort of understand this. And um, I can see that that's one of the reasons why I asked about how difficult it is in terms of policies and regulations. Um, I sort of want to ask you um, what are your target customers or, or how uh, who do you, who do you think is the right person to sort of um, uh, for you to go after at this moment? Sure. as investors. Uh,
2: yeah I, I think that's a great question. Um, we currently feel that our target users are people typically in the age group of 25 to 40 right um, These are individuals who are typically based in tier 1 cities a lot of our products are digitally enabled right our, our platforms digitally enabled but also the companies leasing from us are fairly new age business models which appeal more and are more understood by tier a audiences i think the most important is that our, people who invest in our product should already have invested in other products grip should not be their first investment option okay uh, and so it's true for all non standard or non traditional investment options we encourage people to first invest in the stock market Invest in fixed deposits. And when they have built a reasonable portfolio there and are looking for something that are, that is giving them a additional return at an additional risk is when they should explore grip as an investment option. Um, users that we typically target also have an, have an annual income, which is more than 10 lakh rupees. We're again looking for people who are to some extent financially savvy, understand the risks or, and, and can also take the raw loss and returns of what they're getting into. So that is our user profile. We've been very fortunate that, despite being a year old and being only digital, we now have investors from three hundred plus cities and about forty-two countries. These are obviously all Indians, but I think the power of being able to disseminate that information and the word of mouth that we have received has really helped us build to a large, you know, global platform. Uh, while the type of users is very much what I mentioned to you earlier. So um, Nikhil,
1: so while you have customers from different countries and diaspora of Indians outside, as well as a large number of cities in India, so on the leasing side, on the supply side of infrastructure, like how do you see the adoption rate? And you know what kind of companies are open to such avenues? and is that only locally in india or is that also split across different places um so and what are the yeah so you can, i would like to know i would like to understand from the supply side of things
2: understand um at a very overall level or an industry level you know as indian companies or indian founders no one ever told us about leasing right we were only taught about taking equity and debt and that's it right forget there was no one who told us about invoice discounting or uh, receivable financing—it it just wasn't the case, especially in the new age founders. Traditional companies, are, I would say, I would rank them differently. Uh, VC has become such a, you know, commonly placed word that that was the only solution that we thought about. I think our the biggest part of our challenge has been to educate founders that they should think about diversifying their source of capital among various use cases, depending on what they want to use the capital for if you want the capital to grow your team please think about equity as a source of capital if you want to uh, if you have a lot of stable income please think about debt because it's a great way of taking financing if you want capital capex please think about lease financing right so i think the biggest uh, change that we are trying to make on the supply side is to educate people on the power of lease financing or leasing for their businesses As an extension to this pranab, companies that require a lot of capital assets are more prone to being the right target for us in terms of leasing. Mobility is a fantastic use case, but other infrastructure companies are, make a lot of sense. In fact, globally, 50% of all leasing is done in mobility sector, right? And that continues to be the breakup of the assets that we are seeing as well. Outside of that, you know, I'll pick up one or two examples where it may be interesting to, interesting for you and for your users to note in terms of where leasing is, we are seeing happening. One is uh, warehousing. Okay. So as India builds out a lot of warehouses and we have a lot of logistics companies, everything from the land to the warehouse structure to what goes inside the warehouse is available for lease, right? And, and there are different players playing in this, in this environment, but we are, we're very focused on leasing to warehousing companies and grow with the growth that they are seeing. The other interesting product we're seeing is actually uh, consumables and IoT devices, okay? I don't know how many people know, but today water filters that we have in our homes are available on a lease model, right? Furniture is available on a lease model. Uh, Laptops and electronics are available on a lease model. And there are very large companies who are providing these services we are working with them at the back to make these transactions happen similarly industries for the for the requirement of data are enabling all of their devices with iots right various kind of sensors that provide them power them with information to make decisions once again that is a very interesting space that we are seeing to provide lease finance
1: great so um what are the criterias of companies which would like to which would try to avail the services you guys offer because you know, as a start, running a startup myself, I have faced a lot of financial problems in terms of capital expansion or just having setting up escrow accounts or even getting a, a trade finance account to be facilitated or LC to be facilitated. So can such small companies also uh, avail these services or how, how does this criteria go?
2: Absolutely. There's no reason why they can't. Um, I would say that like you are building... You no, know, like founders are building different kind of companies. We are trying to build a different kind of leasing platform, right? And we are very keen to support early stage companies with their requirement for assets. The principle we apply is fairly simple, which is to say, the journey of taking a product risk, right, or a business risk, the first part where you have to prove yourself that the product or service you're providing is viable, is that of an equity investment. But once you have proven that and you're looking to scale, which, which, for which you require a large number of assets, that is when lease financing can be a great enabler. Okay. So let's say you have a, you're a company who has developed a new product and you have signed on your first or second customer, which has given proof that this product is working. You've had a relationship with them for six months to a year and demonstrated that your product is adding value. Now you're on the, on the brink of wanting to sign hundreds of similar contracts for the same product and scale your business. This is when you need lease financing because that's when you need capital for scale for a very specific asset. And you should approach GRIP or other platforms, other NBFCs to seek lease finance. That is the kind of stage that you can look for. Different providers will have different criteria. We have our own criteria, but we're very encouraging of companies who are even a year and a half, two years old, and we can support them our recent one of our recent transactions just to give an example most of the company which is probably less than a year old but has been able to demonstrate that its product is really valuable when it comes to logistics for auto component manufacturers and we have been able to lease them assets which is now helping them scale
0: um Nikhil, this 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 is a very uh, i don't know if it's the right question to ask or if if i am asking you the right question as well. Um, how do you find the balance between what the founder actually needs and what the investor's interests are?
2: Sure. Well, I think that's a great question. Um, and and it's something that we have to deal with every day. Over a period of time, I would say, I would say that this question uh, was a big issue for us very early in our journey, maybe the first five to six months of our journey, where we were trying to understand both sides of the equation. I think about seventy-five transactions down, and you know, having worked with four thousand plus investors, we have a fairly good sense of what investors are looking for, and what are the kind of deals that they would be willing to support in terms of risk, in terms of returns, in terms of asset, in terms of profiles of companies. With that perspective, we are now fairly confident of the kind of companies that we would be happy to take to them. The one caveat I would add. Is that we are probably more conservative than our investors. A lot of our investors will tell us that they're happy to look at more risk, but we are not, as a platform, happy to do that. Right? We are a gatekeeper for the transactions that come on our platform. We're not the ultimate decision makers, that's our investors, but we're definitely the gatekeepers. And hence, it is our responsibility to filter investors' opinion, also to match what we believe is comfortable because the GRIP team invests in every single transaction. We put our personal money in every single transaction. And hence, we always apply that filter. So that bridge somewhere has reduced. As we scale on both sides, I think that question will keep coming up to different dimensions, right? We are 100 crores, almost 100 crores as a platform today. We want to be a 1,000 crores by next year. And those will require us to have different persona of investors as well as different persona of companies we work with. And to some extent we'll have to keep figuring it out
1: great and you know like uh, you just stated that you're looking at a thousand crores on your platform transaction to going up and tell us about what's happening in the finance industry right now and the markets in india like you see ip we have raining ipos going on the market is uh, soaring and then there's a lot of spacks happening around in the west and even in the southeast asian countries so yeah. what is what is your ideology behind that and what is your uh, uh, perspective of what's happening in the markets right now, and how does that affect your uh, product or your company? Like, and what is your perspective
2: on it? Um, I, I would say two, two trends really stand out. One which I have seen play out earlier, and one which I believe is, is different. Okay. Um, the first one is liquidity, and, and I'm not the first person to say this. Every other person on the road is talking about this. That there is just tremendous liquidity in the system. I saw this as I joined Morgan Stanley um, after the global financial crisis. And I don't know if you guys remember, but in 2009 and 10, we had had the same kind of intensity of IPOs and fundraising that was happening in the public markets. It was backed by the loosening of capital that was done predominantly in the US, but also in Europe, also in India where there was a lot more capital that came into emerging markets looking for a higher yield i think the same thing is happening is playing out now uh, which is generating so much more interest in the public markets in addition we have to realize that indian retail investors do have tremendous amount of wealth okay uh, we are a country of complete uh, you know odds we have incredibly poor people and we have incredible and we have a large number of incredibly rich people Uh, And that money is coming out and getting spent or getting invested in the economy, right? Uh, And this is something that has happened before. It will probably happen again. At some point of time, that quantitative easing will reduce and that will have an impact on the markets to some extent. This, the thing that I believe is different is that, you know, tech is not as much a bubble today as it was two decades back. If you look at the lives that we live today, tech is making a huge impact and new age companies are making a huge impact to the way we live our lives. Okay. Just if you were to look at this screen and this conversation is happening, we are having it on a new age communications platform. Okay. Um, Zoom did not exist. I, I don't know. Maybe it not exist 10 years back, but it has transformed the way we communicate. The room that you sit in. And the lights that you have are probably from a new age company building, you know, uh, lights that turn on when you enter the room, the clothes that you wear are from a company that probably did not exist more than a decade back. Right? The products that you use for grooming today morning are from new age companies. So the transition and, and all these products were purchased from a website that did not exist a decade back right? using a payments platform that did not exist a decade back. So, for this generation and for our parents' generation, and definitely for our for the next generation, there is a complete transformation happening in the way goods are produced, transacted, consumed, and that is being enabled by tech-enabled companies, right? Tech-powered companies. Given that, some of the euphoria that we're seeing around this sector is justified. Okay? I can't say that the valuations are justified or not justified. I think that's a matter of perspective. But the euphoria about the change that is being brought about is justified, and hence what we are seeing to some extent in the IPOs for a Zomato or a car valley and the excitement around that or car trade, sorry, makes a lot of sense. What we are seeing in the private markets and the VC interest makes sense. How it will play out as the economy shifts and governments change their position, obviously, something that uh, cannot necessarily be predicted. You have also
1: stated that uh, you know fintechs are reimagining how trading works and how payments work and there's a lot of reward mechanism which is which has never been there before, right? Like you make a transaction on credit, you get something free, you make a transaction on any of these platforms and even cross-border transfers have become a little more easier. So what is your view on the statement you had made on this? Like what, what made you think that this is changing completely? And you know, like, so what's your view on
2: that? I would draw from the last example that I gave uh, the way we are transacting with money is fundamentally different today payments upi you know the way we pay for credit cards the way we get rewards how banking is changing i mean at one point of time our banks were our only source of of interacting with the financial system right everything happened through a bank that's no longer true right in the back end the banks may obviously are still playing a very important role in terms of being the the houses for money to be stored, but a lot of the transactions are being enabled through applications and through technology that is not necessarily controlled by the bank. And I think that's the main transition that is happening. What has not happened as much is on the investment side, which is where I think GRIP is trying to play a role.
0: Um, Nikhil, where do you see GRIP in five years? What is your vision for GRIP and and where do you see it?
2: Sure. Um, You know, if you think of stock market investing play, you'll think of Now, If you think of a bank where you want to keep your fixed deposits, you'll think of HDFC. But if you think of a place where you want to make new age investments, you can't think of a single name, right? Grip wants to be the name that users will intuitively think of when they think about where they want to invest their capital in the future outside of stock markets and fixed deposits. And that's the future that we see for Grip i don't know whether the answer lies just in india outside india what are those products i think that is that is a journey that we have to discover but that is the vision that we have to build. um
1: and nikhil what's your view on the gold market like there's a lot of companies uh, you know giving more aspects of investments for millennials into the gold market right and even india's stockpiling of gold is is well known to everybody so what is your view on that market and startups working in that market because we are seeing a lot of traction there
2: yeah I'm actually really for more and more products coming up, okay? uh, whether it, I think gold-based investments are a great product. Um, I think real estate-based investments are also a great product and, and so are 10 other products. And I, I'm incredibly excited about the transition that is happening in India with the emergence of more and more products avas- available to a larger audience. What I would caution people against is to really do their work on understanding what the startup is offering or what the company is offering and how it is structured just because it is a gold based doesn't provide you the right protection okay there are various ways to package it securitize it etc and i think the diligence is required at that level to make sure that a person is making the right returns on the right risk uh, we have seen you know gold based startups offer anywhere between 7 to 15% uh, in returns and and hence you can imagine how different those products are and that and every user or every investor should make sure they look into it before they make an investment
0: i am going to pivot into a uh, i think we've spoken a lot about grip and I, and we really want to know a little bit more about yourself and your journey as well so um you said that you started chalo you started grip and and what what is what are the hurdles of starting a, of of a startup
2: oh that's that's a like a full one-hour discussion in itself <laughs> um Maybe I'll try to capture a few of the main ones that I feel are consistent across all startups. Uh, the first one is um, is to definitely have a much more longer-term view. Right? Um, there are so many daily ups and downs in the startup journey. As a founder, you're the person who sees the best and the worst of the startup, right? You will get, if, if things are going well, your users will be the will call you first and tell you things are great. And when things are not going bad, they'll call you and tell you the things are, not, are going bad, are going well. right? And you're so personally attached to the success of a startup that as that up and down happens, you feel it personally. I think it's important to sort of average those out and look at the way the line is trending rather than the ups and downs because um, you can get incredibly demotivated and depressed by those thoughts. You have to take a longer term view into where in the, in which direction the company is going and then, and then take your actions according to that. So it's important to, to, in some way disconnect from the day to day happenings or day to day emotions of, of building a startup. The second biggest challenge obviously is, um, culture and team building. I, I mean, enough people have talked about it. I'm I'm the you know, millionth person to talk about it, but this is getting incredibly difficult especially as we are working remotely and don't have the ability to build or to use physical uh, you know proximity to be able to understand how people are doing and to in to be able to align culture vision values of our team um we've had this challenge we don't we still don't have an office right um, i've met my team maybe a handful of times in the last 15 months and this is a is a real challenge for people um at the same time, you're constantly hiring people and each person brings with them their own set of values and culture, and you have to constantly align it. Grip, for example, has doubled its team in the last quarter, which means that we suddenly have to bring in, bring together half the 50% of the people into the culture that the other 50% of people were living by, right? Um, and I think that's the second challenge. The third one and the final one that I'll cover today is, is to stop drinking your own Kool-Aid. Okay. You know, it is so easy to believe that your world exists around this startup and everything that you're doing is right. That you tend to not see the mistakes that are happening because you're not getting, you're not able to be distanced from your, from the enterprise that is happening. I would recommend two things uh, for, for founders that has, that has worked for me or I'm, and I'm, I'm still learning. One is, As you build a team, create a distance between the execution that your team and your reportee does from yourself, right? For example, if we have business development as a process, the business development team reports to me twice or thrice a week on the progress that they are making. But because I am not involved in it on a day-to-day basis, I'm able to be sort of distant from it and take an understanding of what's happening right and what's happening wrong. And that allows us to course correct. The second thing is to have a advisor or a mentor or a friend, whatever it may be outside your company with whom you can have very, very transparent conversations and who will tell you on your face what is happening right or not. Okay. You need someone who you can rely on who will call your bullshit and tell you that something is not happening Correct. So these to me are three very common challenges uh, and probably the most difficult part of building a startup.
1: Uh, in that answer, So like, I do have a, I do see a lot of founders becoming very, uh, you know, like very into what they're building, right? Like they become, uh, their company becomes the identity. And sometimes when they're not able to shred that off it and, you know, like come out of it and it really disturbs them to a certain extent. Even I've fallen prey to this a couple of times, right? So I think the aspect of distancing yourself and watching the team doing and doing what they're supposed to be doing, is a great advice to uh, founders. So looking back, you know, what has been your favorite failure and uh, what, what incident or probably in your previous career, which has really taught you on the way you process your thoughts and channelize your communication with your team. So what has been your favorite failure and which has been your best learning experience?
2: Sure. Um, I think the, fa- the failure is also the best learning experience. Um, you know, when you're doing, when things are going well, you, you barely, t- you hardly tend to learn. You just tend to believe that you, you will always get it right so you don't learn from success i'll talk about two failures that sort of stood out for me the first one uh, was around hiring where in early very early in early in, in my journey with chalo we hired people who we believed came with great industry knowledge okay who were experts in stuff that we needed to learn as a company because we didn't necessarily uh, come from transportation or logistics as an industry and we believe that if we brought in people with that experience, we would be able to leverage that expertise to grow. I am not dismissing the experience or, or having that knowledge as being an advantage. But what I realized is that if they are not a cultural fit to the organization you're building, that experience doesn't ever give its rewards. Hiring for culture and attitude became much, much more important as a learning than hiring for aptitude. So we hired for aptitude initially, but we realized that you can get a person to have skills, technical skills, but it's very difficult to solve for culture and, and attitude. Right? So as a result in grip, we have always hired for culture and attitude and never hired for aptitude. Okay? I'm proud to share that as of today, we don't have a single person who's left the company or um, because we have always made that choice and allowed us to have a more, sort of organization that is uh, together and thinks together, thinks to a common common way. The second thing Pranab is um, again connected to the point of disconnecting. It's very common to see founders working seven days a week and 12, 13, 14 hours a day. One of the things that very consciously we've done at Grip from day one is that the team only works five days a week and we work between say 9.30 and 7.30. We do not work beyond that. As a result, the entire team and I get time to break away from the day-to-day execution of work and think about what we may do differently, what may be going wrong, and what we have to plan for going forward. Right? It gives us time to reflect and disconnect from the day-to-day execution um, and the day-to-day challenges. Right? I think that has been a huge learning uh, from my prior experiences and allowed us to do a better job at this.
0: I I love the fact that you actually highlighted that and uh, that's one of our very, uh, very important questions that we ask a lot of people is that what are the things that you do outside of work that actually helps you at work? What are your other interests? It sort of gives you a lot of perspective. So what is that for you, um, uh, Nikhil? And and is there a particular habit or a routine that you do that sort of gets you in the right kind of mindset?
2: Yeah, for me, it's definitely working out. Um, I... Uh, really i i work out about four days a week um, including on weekdays so uh, you know whatever may happen at work uh, but it's just important to take an hour out and work 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 out it's just not for the body right a workout is is so much more for the mind uh it's it it is sort of my meditation uh in that one hour you barely think about anything else that's going on and it really allows you to disconnect i think this is I realize it's even more important when you, when your home is your workplace, Uh, because normally when you drive back from work, you are making a mental switch between changing, you know, which personality, which persona you're playing, whether you're playing the professional or the person at home. And this workout really works also for me in doing that, um, running as part of the workout, which I do typically on weekends is another very important thing. I think to be able to do something alone, where there is nothing else you're not you're not using any kind of separate apparatus or accessory it's just you um i think for me works a lot it it releases a lot of energy a lot of stress uh, and allows me to focus again um you know i i would say that's the one thing attached to work i'm also a very avid reader um i really enjoy reading biographies um, not someone to read a lot of management books. I'm not a big fan of management books, but I read a lot of biographies because I I enjoy learning from those people's lives uh, and seeing the challenges that they had and what decisions they made. So that's uh, that's the two things that I do fairly regularly.
1: Um, Nikhil, these are golden words, right? And Golden rise from your culture, from disconnecting. And you seem like a very internally driven person and you seem very composed in terms of your thought process. And I'm sure like uh, you... Try to acquire as much information as possible, and with your reading as well. So, what kind of books do you read, and who are you currently reading? And advice to our audience on what are the books uh, you've, you've you've found your uh, you know like your best at.
2: Well, um, I really I recently read a book uh, I finished about a week back that I recommended to the rest of my team to read. It's called Moon Shorts. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but it's written by a physicist on business, on, on logic of businesses. And I think it was very fascinating as an idea for someone who in science to write about business. Um, the basic theme of the book was that there are two types of phases in any institution. One is when you're making a loon shot, which is to do something disruptive. And the second is when you've got a product that is working well and you're basically executing, it, right. And you're not necessarily innovating on it. The book talks about how the organization needs to create a structure for loon, loon shots to happen. Okay. And the best type of organization is is one in which the loon shot and the execution can happen at the same time, right? Because that's how you, how you build and scale. A lot of organizations have gone through the loon shot journey, destroyed the structure and then just executed, but they missed out on doing anything forward. Nokia is a great example. Xerox is a great example, but but there have been a lot of successful examples of companies and governments and countries who have enabled both to happen and and exist in uh, ex- coexist. And it's a very fascinating book that actually chronicles this from various experiences. Um, I think that stood out to me a lot. Uh, the other book that I'm reading currently is called Spider Network, uh, which is a book talking about the the manipulation of the LIBOR. Can I you repeat that again? Of
1: manipulation
2: of LIBOR, L- London Interbank okay. Offer Rate. This was a, this was something that came out maybe five or six years back, where a bunch of traders in uh, the global markets manipulated the LIBOR rate, which is the, you know the base of all of our transactions and interest rates. Um, and uh, it's an I, I've just got started, but it seems to be an interesting book uh, chronicling that that piece of thing and what motivated people to do it. Um, the reason I read these kind of books is because we are in the business of investing people's money. right? And each of these books serves as a reminder of how horrible things can go wrong if you provide the wrong incentive to your teams. Right? Um, we need to, as GRIP, need to provide the right incentive, which always protects investor interests, always focuses on transparency, always focuses on admitting mistakes and making them right. Uh, Rather than, you know, doing anything that could potentially harm anyone, put grip at a reputational risk. And hence books like this, the Madoff story, you know, all of these things are incredibly important for us to be self-aware of how wrong things can be
0: that's that's really amazing about how responsible you are with another person's money and how you are trying to sort of make sure that you are in that sort of mindset to be careful about it so we're sort of coming to the end of our podcast and we know you you're short on time and we are also running out of questions because you're answering them <laughs> even before you have we asked them so uh we have uh, i just have one more question that we always ask our uh, guests is that if you had a billboard and it had to say something and it was something that you wanted to tell the world, what would it be?
2: Well, in the context of entrepreneurship and building a company, I would say build a calm company. That's what my billboard would say. Okay. Um, I have gone through a journey of, you know, being constantly at a higher frequency of building something and always constantly excited and troubled and worried about what you're building. I think we function better when we are calm and each person's higher frequency or lower frequency impacts the other person's energy, right? It's in, it's in, it transmits between people. I think the world for some reason believes that it's really important to always be working and always be in a, in a highly explosive phase when it comes to a startup. Unfortunately, those are the stories that are glorified. Um, we believe internally that we are, we want to build a calm company and people should really enjoy what they're doing. Um, and and have a great work-life balance. Know one of the it reminds me of one of the one of the styles of working we have at GRIP. It says um, we're gonna be a we're gonna have fun at work. Okay. But the way we define it is not that you will have fun where we'll be going out for parties and we'll be drinking beer and all this stuff. Fun at work means that we will provide you an environment which is safe, where you have great quality work and you have great colleagues, but don't expect parties, right? If you want to party, go out, have party, but that's not the what work is about. And the same way we want to build a company that is calm, uh, focused. Uh, you know exactly what you are going to get, what you're going to come for, and no one is going to pressurize you to work in a, in a different company So that, that's what my billboard would say.
1: Nikhil, thank you so much. And I think I'm, quite, I'm, I'm really inspired by the way you would want to structure out your company, and which is not clearly evident right now. right? Everything is extremely... Uh, brash and there's there's a lot of toxicity happening with big valuations, raising and just competing with each other to get that glory, right? Uh,
2: I think this is the point you mentioned about every day reading a new news about a unicorn, about someone raising money I can imagine how for founders especially young founders, it must be like so troubling to see other people raise money right? and it, it must be bothering them feeling that they're missing out on something constantly we had a similar discussion in the company. We have a lot of young employees who saw other fintechs raising capital and who were constantly worried about our competition. I think the advice we gave to them was this is not a zero-sum game. Right? Um, there are some industries, absolutely, where it's a zero-sum game and some situations where it's a zero-sum game. Most of life is not a zero-sum game. Okay, And the success of another company does not mean that you are unlikely to be successful. In fact, in a all of us are building something which is innovative, which means we need more publicity, more awareness, more user uh, awareness about the product. And hence, competition is a good thing. Um, I think it's important for founders to believe that other companies raising money does not necessarily mean the demise of their venture. Everyone can benefit from the growth that is happening in our industry. If there was not so much VC capital, it's unlikely to even come to us. So. Um, I really wish people start looking at it. I wish there are stories of founders who have built companies in karma ways, uh, who have done, you know, had more work-life balance come out that allows us all as an industry to lower our frequency. Uh,
0: I'm I'm just so happy that we sort of connected with you, and and uh, and this was such a nice, candid, and and a very open conversation that we had with you, Nikit. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for listening to the 30-Minute Hustle podcast. You can follow us on Instagram for all our latest updates. Until next time, signing off. This is Pranab and my co-host Janish.